Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Stephen Hansen, Director of Biopharma Intelligence at BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. And Steve Austin, Washington Editor. On today's pod, we have an analysis of pharma's deal-making interests, BioCentury conversations with Genentech CEO Alexander Hardy and Leering Partners founder and CEO Jeffrey Leering, and what's next for bio's leadership at the top. But first, join the BioCentury team in Boston on October 2nd to the 4th for our second East-West Biopharma Summit. As we've seen in recent analysis by my colleague, Selena Koch, deal-making is on the rise between Western and Asian biopharma companies. We expect many China and Asia biotech CEOs to travel to Boston that week and join the East-West Summit. Confirmed speakers include Biogen's Chris Vierbacher, Takeda's Andy Plump, and BMS's Robert Plenge. You can register or apply to present at biocenturyeastwest.com. We hope to see you there. Right, so the first topic I'd like to start with, I'd like to turn to Lauren and her analysis of the pharma deals over the past 12 months. Lauren, can you tell us a little bit about the project that you were working on and what you found? Sure, thanks, Stephen. So I looked at the total set of deals made by 21 what we're calling top pharma companies, which were selected based on the revenue deal trends and market cap of these companies over the past year or so. We looked at the deals from the third quarter of 2022 through the end of the second quarter of 2023, so through the end of June. And two of the big takeaways that I found were that it's all about first-in-class assets and autoimmune diseases are becoming a big top priority. So on the first-in-class assets, we hear a lot about whether or not first-in-class or best-in-class is the best pipeline strategy. And we hear a lot of people swaying towards best-in-class. But what the data show are that farmers are looking externally for new biology, new targets, first-in-class candidates. 75% of the product-focused deals over the last year involved potential first-in-class assets. And even the research collaborations were pretty heavily focused on new modality technologies and target discovery deals and things that could potentially lead to first-in-class assets. So Lauren, tell us, does that go across the realm? How, how much of the partnering and deal-making is early stage, let's talk about preclinical compared with phase two or proof of concept. And does that vary with therapeutic area and so on? It was pretty consistent across therapeutic areas. We hear a lot about how farmers only want late stage assets. That was not what at least the research collaborations and product focused deals that, that have been executed reflect. Most of the deals were phase two or earlier. And something interesting, at least in the acquisitions, was that Regardless of clinical stage, the acquisition price for these takeouts was within the same range, pretty consistent. So pharmas over the past year did not pay much more for a phase two asset than for phase one and for phase three than phase two, which I thought was interesting. I think that will surprise a lot of people. So how, how do we, Stephen, Lauren, what, what's going on there? You're not getting more money for a more advanced asset? I think different assets are worth a different amount of money, regardless of the phase, you know. One way to look at that is that there's a winnowing feature there. Some of the things that are the most promising in phase one are going to get scooped up there. If something hasn't been acquired by the time that it gets to phase two or later, it might mean that there's more competition in that space. There's less certainty or something like that. So these companies are like scouring the landscape 
and there's a, a filtering process. The things that make it through that haven't been acquired by the time they get to be later may be inherently worth a bit less. I think you're right, Steve. I think another thing on top of that is if you've got a really great asset and you're in phase two or phase three, keep it commercialize it. Why would you partner? What's your motivation to partner at that point? So I think that probably if you're a single asset company and you may not necessarily have a growth trajectory, your goal might be M&A. That might be when you enter a partnership, but we're going to be writing more about this soon. But how and when to partner is extremely important for your growth strategy. So I think you're right, Steve, that sort of there's a sort of almost Darwinian part of this. I think especially in the context of the past year, when so many companies have been looking for alternative ways to raise money, if you're looking at this as just a way of bringing in new capital, maybe you're... Not in the driver's seat. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're maybe a little more open to taking different sort of valuation things as long as it gets you an extra 12 months, 18 months worth of cash runway. Lauren, one other thing you didn't mention, I didn't hear you talk about neurology at all. We know that's been a big topic. Didn't hear you talk about obesity at all. That's a big topic. Tell us what's going on in those spaces. Yeah, I thought that the number of neurology deals was very interesting. We almost always see neurology come in second to cancer in these kind of analyses. And that was not the case this time. It was autoimmune diseases. And we didn't see any neurology-focused M&A in this deal set, these particular pharmas over the past year, which was also very interesting. And within the neurology partnerships that we saw, there wasn't a lot of neurodegeneration, which was kind of surprising given the fact that we've seen some neurodegeneration drugs reach the market this year. And we, we didn't talk about the autoimmune disease stuff that was driving the large number of deals this year. What I thought was interesting was that often in that space, we see a lot of companies go after similar targets with next generation therapies. And, and that was not what drove the deals this year. There was a lot of very innovative autoimmune disease stuff going on. Four different pharmas did deals involving regulatory T-cell therapies. And this, this kind of gets to your obesity question. We didn't see a ton of obesity deals. There was a lot of activity in diabetes though. Diabetes cell therapies were very big trend and, and some other mechanisms as well. So but it was interesting to see how much innovation is going into that space. And, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. I suppose one thing to take into account is that these are all lagging indicators to some degree. So even though it's the most recent data we've got, which is the last year, some of the most biggest moves in neuro and obesity have been in the last few months. So it's possible that those conversations are happening now. And we did, of course, have one obesity takeout from Lily. Several weeks ago, the Versanis bio acquisition. That's right, Simone. Thank you so much, Lauren. And that story, I think, is going to be up today. So everyone can check that out on uh, biocentury.com. Excellent. So, Steve, I wanted to move to you now. You had a chance to chat with Genentech CEO Alexander Hardy. What were the highlights from that conversation? So, I take a step back and say, my view is that everyone, patients, society, biopharma companies, investors, come out ahead when there's a good alignment between public health goals and the financial incentives for companies. That's basically what I talked to Alexander Hardy about, what he described. And interestingly, Richard Pops, the CEO of Alkermes, had overlapping comments in my recent interview, which is posted on the BioCentury show. Our misalignments between the financial incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act and the public's need for certain kinds of biomedical innovation Hardy described this as a dilemma. That was the word that he used. 
that companies like Genentech face because they're forced to choose between what's clearly the best for patients and what's the best for shareholders. And he didn't say it, but I will. In some cases, well-capitalized companies like Genentech may choose patients over shareholders, but that certainly isn't always going to be the case. And it's going to be less likely in direct proportion to the size of the mismatch between financial incentives and patient need. That's why the Inflation Reduction Act is causing a great deal of pain and, and difficulty. A particular mismatch that Hardy talked about was created by the nine-year limit on market-based pricing for small molecules. That's not going to stop small molecule development. He gave a good example of that. But it may mean that companies delay or even drop development for smaller indications so that they can launch with the biggest, most profitable indications. He gave the example of a small molecule drug that Genentech is developing that could be, he says, best in class for several different kinds of cancer. Ordinarily, in the absence of the Inflation Reduction Act, they would have launched it or tried to launch it first in ovarian cancer. But he said that they're considering, he didn't say that they're going to do it, but they're considering delaying that ovarian cancer launch by three years so they can launch first for prostate cancer. You know, the other thing that was really interesting in the conversation, he talked about something which Roche and Genentech have talked about internally, but they haven't talked about a lot externally, which is that they have a goal of providing three to five times the patient benefit that they currently deliver at half the cost to society by 2030. And he said that the IRA is going to make it more difficult to do that, not the, the cost part of it, but the benefit part of it. It's going to make it more difficult for them to go, for example, in cancer from metastatic disease to early stage disease where they can deliver a lot more benefit to society. Steve, we've covered this a little bit in the past. I imagine we're going to discuss it several times more. We know that the investor community also has its issues with the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. How effective do you think this can be, this message? At the end of the day, the message has to be for politicians, I would assume, rather than you or me, rather than the public. Well, yeah. So the pharmaceutical industry and the investment community has already convinced themselves of the need to change the IRA. What they need to do now is to change the minds either in Congress or in the administration. Alexander Hardy conceded to me that he didn't think that Congress is going to do anything in the near term or nothing substantial. And he was hoping and is hoping that CMS and HHS change the way that they're planning to implement the law so that it minimizes the disincentives for innovation. What Genentech and some other companies are asking CMS to do is basically to use their discretion in the price setting process to reward companies with small molecules that do things like invest in innovative, important new indications. But again, he didn't seem to be too optimistic in the short term that that's going to happen. One of the other things that he talked about that's interesting, and Hardy, by the way, serves on Pharma's board of directors, so he's pretty plugged into what the industry is thinking and what the trade associations are thinking. One of the other things that he emphasized is the need, from his point of view, for reform to the PBM, the pharmacy benefit manager business model. He thinks that PBM revenues should be delinked from the costs of drugs and that the rebates that are paid to PBMs should be passed through to patients at the point of sale. He also called for curbing the use of copay maximizers, which calibrate a patient's costs at the maximum amount of copay assistance provided by drug companies, and of copay accumulators, which prevent patients from applying costs covered by manufacturer-provided copay assistance to out-of-pocket caps. And he argues that 
those kinds of changes, changes to the PBM model, will do more than the IRA did to improve the affordability for patients. And I think he's right, because those things that he's talking about changing in the PBM models will flow through directly and rapidly to patients, whereas the things that are happening with the IRA are going to change the costs to Medicare and to the extent that they're picked up by the private sector to other payers. But it's a much more indirect path to go from that to actually changing what costs for patients are out of pocket. Well, talking of people, Stephen, you spoke with Jeffrey Leerink and his longtime partner, Dan Dubing of Leerink about the SVB rescue or deal, whichever way you want to put it, resurgence, perhaps. You can tell us about that conversation. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Simone. It was pretty fascinating. Just in the first part of our conversation, you know, I just asked them, how did you find out? What was that like when you found out about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank? And so that was quite interesting, kind of getting his perspective on what they went through in those sort of harrowing first few weeks, both in terms of helping their clients kind of understand kind of what this meant for them, but also, you know, on the flip side, just helping their own employees understand what their future potentially might be. And that was kind of where he sort of immediately, you know, take a step back here. So obviously, Leering Partners was a independent boutique investment bank for the vast majority of its history, started in 1995 and was independent up until it was acquired by Silicon Valley Bank in 2019. So there was this long history of it being one of the most active financing partners that worked alongside the life sciences sector for 24 years of its life. And so this really, I mean, in some ways, I think they would view this as something of a silver lining in the sense that this really presented Leerink with the opportunity to regain their independence. So, you know, step out from the ashes of the Silicon Valley Bank collapse and rechristen as they've done. So it's now called Leerink Partners again. And as we saw during the last several months when everything was trying to be worked out at the top, they were still working on deals, working on uh, financings with companies, working on advisory for partnering and things. So yeah, no, I think it's uh, sort of at least good for the sector to see one of these key partners in financing the sector be able to continue forward. The thing that, that, that I found interesting actually was the bottom of your interview where there's some kind of optimistic talk about the IPO window opening back again and companies getting ready for that. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what they had to say about that? Yeah, no, I think uh, so. So that was the end of our conversation, as you point out. And I think it kind of mirrors a lot of the conversations we have with other investors and bankers as well, just around sort of a bit of a thawing of the market finally for biotech. So we're getting to a point to where we're seeing some couple IPOs have gotten done and have actually had quite a bit of interest there. We've seen upsized IPOs. And so I think there is a bit more optimism now that even some of the larger mutual fund complexes sort of being open to having a bit more, taking on a bit more risk, which is what biotech definitely is. And so the term that everyone likes to use is cautious optimism, (laughs) that that things are going to start opening up. But I think the big question is when. People have said that they're hoping it might open up after Labor Day. I think there's a lot more people that maybe have taken the view that it's probably going to be at the start of next year, but we'll see. But it's definitely better than it was at this point last year, that's for sure. Within that, he also had some interesting comments. We talk a lot about generalists and specialists at the moment. There's a feeling that the generalists are out, that it's all specialists. But he talked a little bit more about mutual funds maybe getting their experts, bringing them more, what did he say, a, a 
Moving from a red light to a blinking yellow light to a cautious green light and becoming more comfortable with a kind of risk in biotech. And he sort of aligned that with how uh, it's normally led by tech. And in the tech sectors, people start to go back in and then tech becomes very expensive. He says, you know, when tech becomes expensive, the investors start saying, can we take this tech theme and start applying it to biotech? Because that sector hasn't moved yet. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if we're the uh, easier and friendlier place to invest <laughs> or to tech. Well, that, well that, I mean, that is, I think, been the speculation is we've seen, you've probably seen it on like the likes of CNBC, where they've talked about how so much of the S&P 500 run up some of the large indexes this year is all concentrated in like five or six tech stocks. And so those have gotten, you know, so expensive that a lot of some of the speculation and thinking was, well, that money is going to start rotating somewhere and where could it potentially rotate to? And I think some of the hope is that biotech is one of those places where some of that money could find a home. And so one of the small indicators there is, as I alluded to before, when you start seeing IPOs that are oversubscribed, that's indicating that you're getting investors that are interested beyond just the existing VCs that are there that are always there to kind of prop up these IPOs that there's new money that's wanting to buy in, which is always a good sign that there is appetite for the sector out there. So yeah, so no, it was a really, really interesting conversation with Jeff and Dan. Obviously, you can check it out. It's up on biocentry.com now. So I encourage you to look out for that. Steve, I didn't want to come back to you, you know, because there was a sort of interesting tidbit of news that came up last week around the potential future of bio and looking for new leadership. Can you fill us in on what happened last week and what it potentially means for the group? Well, basically, Rachel King, who's been serving as interim CEO, told bio staff and the bio board that she's not throwing her hat in the ring to become CEO on a permanent basis. And the reason that she's not, she said, is because she's not prepared to make the three to five year commitment that the board is seeking for the next CEO. It's entirely personal, I think, where she is in her life. But she did say that she's going to stay on through the search for a new CEO and to help with the transition to a new CEO, which I think makes the staff there and certainly the companies that are involved in running bio, the executives, quite comfortable. Everybody, I think, thinks that, that Rachel King's doing a really good job at bio and has kind of stabilized a situation which, frankly, was spiraling downward. So I think the other thing that her making that announcement does, it makes it more likely that more people are going to come out of the woodwork to want that job. I'm hearing that there are an awful lot of people who have already come forward and said that they like the job. They're casting a wide net for the search this time. They've got a committee of about 10 people also who are going to be scrutinizing. First, what are the criteria that they're going to use for determining what kind of person they want for that job? And then second, coming to a consensus about who they're going to select as the next leader. And I think it's really going to be an important decision and something that everybody in the industry is going to be looking for, looking to. Do you know what timeline they're looking at in terms of finding a permanent replacement? I don't think that they know. I think that they, they <laughs> and, I, and I think that the fact that, that Rachel King has said that she's willing to stay on during the transition and during the search, takes some of the pressure off. I don't think that they feel that, that it's a super urgent task. They can take the time and find somebody who they think is going to be the right person. Sure, sure. Well, great. Well, I'm sure we'll be staying on top of that, Steve. But before we go, I did want to touch on one more subject, Steve, and it's the curious case of stealth therapeutics. Ultra-rare disease and FDA's application of regulatory flexibility can you fill us in on the story you wrote about this and what's happening here? 
So it's a big story. There's a lot of twists and turns in it. I can't really get to the whole thing quickly. But the, basic, the cliff notes. The, yeah. So the cliff note version of it is, is that there's this tiny company, Stealth Therapeutics, which is trying to develop a drug for an extraordinarily rare disease called Barth syndrome. It affects about 150 Americans. It's got no therapy at all approved for it. The drug candidate that Barth is developing is basically the only thing that patients believe can help them. 85% of patients die before the age of five. Those who live are severely affected by the disease and untreated, they will die in their 20s and 30s. Barth has been trying to get the drug candidate approved. They had a phase three trial, a randomized placebo-controlled trial with a dozen patients, which to me is a really very problematic thing. It's like pulling a card from a deck of cards to win in a situation like that. They didn't meet their primary endpoint. The open-label follow-up, they had statistically significant results on a number of endpoints that are important to patients, and they've been struggling to try to get it approved at FDA. They've gotten... Um, shifted around from one division to another division. They've gotten advice that they should submit an NDA. Then just before they were, they were submitting the NDA, they were told by FDA, no, we really don't think that your data supports it. They went ahead and submitted the NDA anyway. They got a refuse to file letter. They got advice about what they would need to do to get accelerated approval. Then they got told later, oh, no, actually, you can't get accelerated approval on that basis. They say that other companies have gotten accelerated approvals or full approvals based on the same kind of data that they have, but it was in different divisions at FDA and so forth and so on. And the thing is really coming to a head quite soon because the company is also developing another indication for that same drug candidate. Their only way that they think that they can make any money with that drug candidate is if they get a rare pediatric priority review voucher. That voucher won't be available if they get the drug approved for another indication because that other indication is not a pediatric indication. So there's about nine months to a year to go. And if they don't get it approved for Barth syndrome, then they're going to have to discontinue that development, which the patient advocates say would be really tragic, especially because there are, I think, eight or nine patients now who are receiving it on an expanded access basis. And they believe that this drug is the only thing that's standing between them and a quick and terrible death. And if the company has to drop the NDA, if they're not developing it for Barth syndrome anymore, there's a good chance that they won't be able to provide it on an expanded access or compassionate use basis to the patients who are receiving it now. And they certainly won't be able to give it to future patients. So, so, so Steve, is, is the main... So is one of the main takeaways or one of the main concerns here that that there isn't a consistent guidance across divisions at FDA about how they go about sort of exercising, I guess, you know, this because you mentioned, I think, in the story about the regulatory flexibility that we've seen in like ALS, or some of these other maybe neurological indications where you've had similar type of data sets that have made it through is what they're pushing for that you want to see sort of consistency across the divisions and how that sort of is applied? Yeah, is that feasible? I, I, Can that be done? I think so. Just really quickly, I think that it's necessary to separate the exact circumstances of this company and this product from the, the bigger picture. And obviously, we don't have access to all of the data about this. We don't know if there's something that we don't know that's mm. stopping this from getting approved or even reviewed. But it does highlight this bigger issue that there are instances where FDA has stepped in and has explicitly said that they're exercising regulatory flexibility. It's happened particularly in neurological disorders. And it's not at all clear what are the circumstances under which they're going to do that. And 
it shouldn't be, I think everybody would agree, it shouldn't be an idiosyncratic process and it shouldn't be a process that's exercised because leadership at FDA has taken a particular interest in a particular disease. There should be something that's more fair and that's more applicable. What some of the rare disease advocates are proposing, and I mentioned in the story, is creating a, a different criteria for reviewing diseases that are ultra rare. And the working definition that, that's been proposed is something that affects 2,000 or fewer patients in the United States. And that in those circumstances, the FDA should explicitly say that they're going to exercise a great deal of regulatory flexibility because it simply isn't possible to generate, or at least it often isn't possible to generate data with the same kind of rigor as it is for more prevalent diseases, even more prevalent diseases that are that are rare, that might affect tens or even up to 200,000 people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you said, Steve, this is a, a really complex, I mean, it, it's a really interesting sort of case study of how this potentially work or, or not work. But as you said, it's super complex. So I would encourage everyone to uh, check out Steve's story on bowstreetshoe.com. That is all that we have time for this week. But um, before you go, just a quick reminder that you can find the latest episode of the BioCentury Show, our sister podcast, which features Steve's conversation with Al Kermi CEO Richard Pops at BioCenturyShow.com. Thank you for listening this week. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendo Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.